This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. Thanks also for subscribing, sending us notes, poems even, and the occasional critique. Today's topic is conservatives and food security. Why should they care? And this show may be one of the hardest in almost four years to introduce. The reason it's hard is because the labels we use to describe people or segments of our population cause those who hear the adjectives to categorize the people. It seems it's harder and harder to hold back the bias we have towards people who are associated with whatever adjective we are using as a descriptor. The word conservative is just such a word. So let me ask you to hold back your bias, judgment, and even your temper and give Jerry and I a chance to win them and you. The fact of the matter is that we have many friends of this movement who are more conservative in their leanings, whether that it's political, social, or philosophical. They support our work and believe in us to solve this problem. Misconceptions, misunderstandings, and missed opportunities all contribute to why conservatives are allegedly less engaged in the fight against hunger across America. Stay with us and enjoy the ride as Jerry and I unpack with our more conservative, traditional, cautious, and conventional members of society and our government and why they should come alongside of us and help us to create a food-secure Michigan. Welcome to the show today, everyone. Jerry Brisson joins me here. And Jerry, uh, I'm excited about the topic today. But first, how are you, my friend? You know, doing well. Thank you, doctor. You know, my uh, my typical response to that question is I have more to be thankful for than to complain about. So, ah. uh, you know, I, I, in this work, it's pretty easy to find a way to feel grateful. I mean, you know, there's so much suffering in our community and we get to see a lot of that and, and we feel really good to be able to help and to, to, to help people be, uh, have a better quality of life and move on to whatever success they can move on to and all the things we talk about being important when we talk about food security. So being present to that all the time uh, certainly makes me aware of how grateful I need to be for, for the many blessings in my life, including you, doctor. Ah, very nice, very nice, thank you. People ask me how we're doing, how's the food banks doing? I always say we're overwhelmed with opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's true, too. We, we, and we would like a little less opportunity, to be honest about it, um, but that's kind of where we're at. Hey, today we got a pretty unique show to talk about, a uh, topic to talk, discuss today, Jerry, and I introduced it in the monologue, and that is, you know, conservatives and why they should care. Um, this has been a, a topic of conversation here for us in Michigan. We have a split legislature uh, or governance. We have a, a, a legislature in the Senate and the House that are controlled by uh, Republicans. And we have the administration who is a member of the Democratic Party. 
That's not uncommon to what it is oftentimes in Washington, D.C., but it's not just about politicians and legislatures and administrations. It's also about people. And so I want us to talk a little bit about why specifically uh, conservatives should care about food security in their community and across the state and the nation. Um, but also, I want us to do that um, in a, you know, obviously we will in a very respectful way um, to, to talk about and try to understand what are some of the values that, that people believe that can help them engage with us. Because one of the things that you and I have said often is we're never going to solve this problem with half the population. <laughs> well, that's the honest truth. Uh, and I would only nuance this by saying not only should they care, but they do care. And, yeah. and many conservatives are deeply engaged in this mission and, and want to see food banks across Michigan succeed and, and our partners uh, succeed. Um, and, and, you know, partners, when I say that, who do we mean? You know, certainly the pantry, soup kitchen, shelters, but, but health care and education and all of the people that are uh, helped when we do our work well. And conservatives care deeply about uh, the success of the programs that are run to help people. So, so indeed, uh, it's a good topic because we, we often, um, in our polarized way, make assumptions about people's motivation right and mm. and we have to be careful about that for one reason is while one person who is labeled a conservative might be motivated a particular way another conservative might not be motivated that way and so sure. there's lots of different you know variations of of attitudes and motivations but from all of those variations we have a majority that support our work. So talking about the things we've learned about conservative values and why they like what we do is a great topic uh, to, to, to put out there. Well, I think generalizations of people, generally speaking, is a half step away from assumptions. And I think we all know what happens when we do that. Yeah, right. That's the, the <laughs> saying goes. <laughs> As the saying goes. So, all right. So let's, let's start with values, Jerry. Let's, let's, and, and values, I will define this as, for me, values are, 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 are guiding principles for me. Many of the values that I have, or several of the values I have, are what I would call non-negotiable. I'm pretty fixed on those. I've decided a long time ago I'm going to be an honest person. So that's a value for me. That means I'm, when, when, when the opportunities to not be honest come along, I'm not going to accept those because I've already made the decision to be an honest person. So those values are guiding principles for us, and certainly our conservative friends have some guiding values that, that determine their thinking, their philosophy, and, and in this case, how they can join in our mission. So, yeah, long talk about values. Um, I'm going to try to... To, to turn that into some statements that I think represent values. So, so for example, a lot of times when you hear conservatives talk about what they want, they talk about smaller government, right? Mm. And there's a lot of reasons why they talk about smaller government and why they think it's important for government to be smaller. And there's probably several values 
that contribute to that statement. But if we just take at face value that in general it's a pretty common thing to hear conservatives talk about smaller government, I think it's one of the reasons that it's, it's um, common for conservatives to like our work. And the reason is that we improve government programs and, and for us we can honestly say that we can do both more and better with the money that's currently being spent on government programs. Now, we work with a lot of people in government, particularly state government, who agree. And we work very closely with people, the Michigan Department of Education and the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, to name uh, several, to show them how we can drive higher value and lower cost. And that's something that conservatives really like about our work. So when we take, for example, during the pandemic, we were permitted to do a different sort of program for kids in schools. It was distributing groceries to families uh, every couple weeks rather than having kids show up for programming every week to get a single meal. And what we learned was if we give parents the food they will prepare the meals for the kids and you take the cost of the meal preparation out of the cost of the program and you can reach more people for less money. Now that, does, that doesn't just happen, that takes a lot of planning, it takes a lot of conversations, it takes some evaluation to make sure it's actually working, but the principle of doing more with less is essentially a conservative principle and a conservative value. And that's one of the reasons that conservatives really like working with food banks because we want to make uh, government uh, more efficient and, and do more with less. So I think that's a really great point. Um, you know, and, and so a couple of comments. Let me give you specific numbers to go with your example in the summer feeding service program. Um, Less than 20%, and that ranges anywhere from 17, 18 to 14% of kids who are eligible for free and reduced breakfast and lunch at school are participating in the summer feeding service program. So that means about 80%, if not a little more, are not participating. And what you're saying is we designed this program to increase participation. And this for less cost. For less cost. And this also is directly related to what? Educational outcomes. Well, just recently, guess what? The test scores across the state came in, and as with the COVID year and the summer uh, off, guess what? A, a vast majority of our students are, are not scoring on the test as we all wish that they would. So... This has direct impact on educational outcomes because kids have access to, to the appropriate food for them. And just one comment about your, uh, your you, you said the parents would prepare the, mood, the, the food and provide the meals for their own children. And the only reason that in my mind, Jerry, that a parent doesn't do that is they don't have the food. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, I hate to oversimplify this a little. You know, sometimes we want to do better and more, and sometimes we can just do less. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's an excellent point. And, and when we think about the why things were built the way they were built, right? Mm. Well, everyone starts out with a set of assumptions. So why do schools all have major meal prep programs that are part of 
that are part of what they provide to households? Well, because the studies that were done in the 1940s and beyond started showing that kids were doing worse in school when they didn't have enough to eat. So the answer was, let's make sure when kids come to school, we give them something to eat. No, are you kidding me? Kids did better when they had access to food? Get out of town. All proven through research for many years. Exactly right. So, so it made sense to say, well, let's put, let's, let's put a real effort into making sure when kids come to school, they have something to eat. But what didn't we think about? Well, we didn't think about what the long-term cost of that would be over time. We didn't think about the, the amount of effort it would take on the part of the schools to, to employ people to do that work. We didn't, we didn't even know what that would look like 30, 40, 50 years later. We also didn't think about all the meals that kids don't get not at school. And if we only take care of one meal a day at school, how do we make sure kids have the rest of the meals, right? So there's a lot of things that weren't considered even though what was considered produced a lot of good. So food banks, with our experience in food and schools and kids and and seeing what happens when we start working with families, said, hey, let's think about these other things and let's work together to provide a better solution and we can do it at less cost. And of course, that's, that's awesome. It really does work. We have a lot of research on our side that shows that it works. And why wouldn't anybody like that, particularly conservatives who think government should be more efficient? Well, higher participation at lower cost. It sounds like you met both values to me. And so this is Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. This is Food First Michigan, and we're both back in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for being with us uh, here on WJR, uh, the podcast. However you're uh, finding us, we're glad that you did. Jerry and I are discussing uh, really about how do we bring more people into this movement and today we're talking about our conservative friends and why they should care and why they do care and uh, how they see the value of our work and uh, Jerry in that first segment that we talked about this it was really about how, how if we understand the need in the community then we can right size the program and I think one of the concerns that conservatives have is the the program might be bigger than the need, but we, we don't know that. Sometimes we just think that. So I think data is a really important part of this conversation. Um, and so that we can, we want to do this right. We want to do more than we're supposed to, but we sure as heck don't want to do less. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And when we think about our approach to the work, I think that coming up with things like the household impact model that really defines the benefit of what we do and adds to those definitions, um, is this scalable? Is this sustainable? What is the cost benefit of doing this versus other solutions? And we tie that into what the economic benefit is of what we do. And we're honest with ourselves about it. So for example, 
If we say that on average somebody gets $67 worth of food every time they come to a food distribution, but because not everyone gets to choose, sometimes they just get a box of food, we have to discount that value based on what isn't consumed because it's just not food that people want or need right then and there. So we don't take full credit for that $67. We discount that by 10 or 15% depending on what type of food it is. And by the way, even that 10 or 15%, we research, we know how much food people actually use. So, so in order to come up with cost-effective solutions that solve problems, you have to be good at defining, well, what impact do you want to have? And then from that, what do you, how do you expect people's lives to be better and the community to be better as a result of that work. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but what I am saying is we're committed to it. And being committed to knowing those answers, what is the true cost benefit of what we do, in addition to the human aspect of it, right? We haven't abandoned that sure. we care about people just because they're people. We haven't abandoned the the notion that, you know, people are deserving of our help. We haven't abandoned that at all, but we add to that a strong business case for what we do and why we do it and how much we should do. So sometimes we know, you know, it's it's cheaper and better to, to give people money. But sometimes we know it's cheaper and better to give people the food they want and need. And you've got to balance those things with each other until you get to the right amount of help in the right way, not just because of some arbitrary notion, but because you can actually show that it's accomplishing what you intend. And these are data-informed decisions when we're talking about right-sizing the solution because we've right-sized the problem. And certainly the pandemic taught us a lot about how deep and how big the problem is in regard to food security and how that relates to poverty and disparities. I don't, it seems like you can't really separate that conversation anymore if we ever should have. But I think that what you're, you're driving at, Jerry, is, and we've done a show on the household impact model, so people can go to our website, foodfirstmi.org, and Google household impact model, and you'll understand what we're talking about there. But, but th since the day I met you, you've been talking about until food banking understands its impact, we're always going to be crippling ourselves in how we can make the case for our work and certainly the business case for our work. And you have to compare your impact with the other possible solutions and that means you have to have a method, right? You can't just say, well, this is what we like to do. No, you've got to say, this is why we think this is better than that, right? So you've got to always compare how else could you solve the problem to what you're doing so that you can be critical of yourself, right? And I think that that, that, that um, principle of evaluation and results-driven management practices or whatever you want to call it is a key conservative value. Now, I'm not saying it's not a liberal value either, but I do think you hear about it more in conversations with conservatives about how they would like to see things done. Right, I agree. I think that's part of the... The, the, the whole template for this show is, is um, 
is, is how do we engage specifically, intentionally, and have the right conversations with, uh, with people that are more conservative in their thoughts and in their philosophies, and how can we address that? And we want to do that. And, you know, this is the way to do that, is first to listen, listen to understand, not to reply, and I think that's, that's you know, you're a really good listener. Um, you have and, to be. Yeah. Unless you know everything, you better be a good listener. <laughs> well, now, that's, I do run into people now and again that, that appear to know everything, and I, I'm a little suspicious of that right off well, the get-go. you know, what does the guy say? The, the, the guy who acts like he knows everything annoys the hell out of the rest of us that do. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, you know, is there this, time for a story on this one? I mean, absolutely, a, you have time a live for a story. example. I mean, so so I was I was talking to someone particularly from healthcare the other day. And uh, this is a healthcare administrator who said, "Jerry, you know, I, I know the, the the there was just a big increase in the SNAP program, and that's what used to be food stamps, the supplemental nutrition assistance in right. Michigan. That's the EBT card. It's you can go to the store and buy the bridge card, it, right? right? And and this person said to me, you know, my concern about that as a person in healthcare is that." I know that, uh, that a, a, a certain amount of that money is going to be spent on soda pop and potato chips, and, and even McDonald's will t- take uh, an EBT card, right? And he said, I can tell you the number of cases I see where people are coming in and, and their, their chronic diseases are directly related to um, eating those kinds of food. And he says, how do we account for what people actually do when they get more funds like that. How do we begin to address all of the impacts of that decision? And I think that's a really good example of how we have to be smarter and better. You know, it's easy if you have an established program to add to it, right? But we know that there's some challenges in that program, and if we're going to be honest with ourselves, and the actual cost of increasing that program, it's more than just the funds it takes to support the program. It includes increased health care costs. Well, how much do they increase? How much does it change the number of people that end up in chronic disease situations because they have more money to spend on whatever they want? Would it be better? to have a healthy food option that people could take advantage of, providing it's food that they want and need, providing it's food that will actually be consumed at the household household level, would it be better to consider that kind of programming as opposed to just expanding what we already do. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna expound too much on that because we don't have enough data to say one thing or the other, but we do have enough data to say it's worth thinking about. And I think the fact that we're willing to put that out there and say, let's not just expand a government program. Let's really think about what all of the consequences of that expansion might be and how can food banks make, again, this program do more and and provide less harm than just giving people an increased benefit. And I think that's a worthy conversation. And it's a it's one I actually had with, with someone in healthcare who's concerned about this particular solution of increasing the SNAP benefit. Yeah, it's a definitely a, a, we gotta take a break here, but it's actually kind of like the, I don't know, it's like a chicken and the egg, it's an oxymoron, it's conflicting values. Because I don't know any of us that really wanna be the food police 
and certainly a conservative value would would uh, and, and a liberal value as well would would focus around liberty and people's personal freedom and so uh but at the same time it has true economic impact in regard to health care cost and and other uh items around those choices so um you know, it's, I love this stuff, man. It's, it's hard to figure out, and that's one of the reasons I love it. He's Jerry Bassan. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit about the benefits cliff, how conservatives see it, and how we think we can fix it. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Thanks for joining us. We're back with Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. And Jerry, we're talking about why conservatives should join us, come alongside of us, and help us solve this frustrating, aggravating problem, challenge of food insecurity. And one of the problems we have, honestly, is what we call the benefits cliff. Can you help us understand what that is? And then maybe we can talk about a solution that I think everybody can get behind. Yeah, I mean, the benefits cliff is actually uh, a phrase that's talking about as you make more money, the amount of benefits you qualify for goes down, right? And so that's less resources coming into your house. So so there's a certain threshold at about 180% of poverty where, you're, where you get no further benefits. You don't qualify for any government benefits. Once you hit that threshold, when you look at the value of those benefits compared to the income you're able to make from working, there's a drop-off point where it's better to not work as much and keep those benefits than there is in getting even you know some you know um, regular raises, and that that threshold is somewhere between eleven and sixteen dollars an hour. Right, it's something like that. So between eleven and sixteen dollars an hour, it's better not to get promoted and not to get a raise, or even not to work as much, so that you can keep your benefits rather than make more money. So that doesn't make any sense, right? It disincentivizes people from the kinds of progress that they want to make and that we all want them to have, right? It disincentivizes work, and that's not smart, right? So that's how I would describe the benefits cliff. Does that? Did I leave anything out, doctor? No, I think that's really good, and I think in Michigan is somewhere around fourteen dollars an hour that you lose. And let me let's talk about what those work supports are, those programs. So there's child. There's child care. There is uh, housing, free and you know, uh, reduced uh, housing cost, and then there is the food benefit, like you talked about earlier, which is SNAP. Um, and so, uh, within about 185 percent of the poverty measure, the federal poverty measure, and that's the measure that determines who gets benefits and who doesn't. Now, we've talked about that a lot on this show, and uh, I think everybody understands, especially. Uh, a show we did a, uh, maybe a year or so back um, with Stacy Dean, and uh, I wanted to know where the federal poverty measure, which building housed it in D.C., because I wanted to have a conversation with those people, because it's not been updated in over 60 years, and it continues to measure wrong. 
And we're not going to ever be able to solve this problem if we keep measuring wrong. We're always going to cut wrong. So I think that's the conversation. And I'd like to share with our listeners that just recently, our director of policy at the Food Bank Council, Anna Almanza, was invited to participate in a call with the White House. And she could talk with White House staff about food insecurity at any level that she wanted to. And I'm happy to report, Jerry, that Anna chose to talk with the White House staff about what? The, the federal poverty. poverty measure. Yeah. And I'll just tell you, the conversation took off from there. And uh, our influence is being felt far and wide on this issue. And we're going to keep having this discussion because uh, it's key to solving the problem. And I, I want us to think about that in, in regard to this benefits cliff. Uh, Rob Fowler, Jerry, said on this show some time ago, the president or CEO at the Small Business Association, that the idea here in regard to people is that are struggling with food insecurity and other measures is that entrepreneurship is the quickest way out of poverty and education is the surest way out of poverty. And I think that, that, that we have to come alongside of people, take this hunger, this, this hunger off the table so they don't live in that toxic stress and now their minds are free to find that next success in education or in entrepreneurship or whatever that might be. And that's how we get people through this, 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 uh, this policy shortfall. Legislators created this policy about work supports that cut off at the benefits cliff, and only legislators can fix it. But they can't fix it without our help. Well, and I think, again, when you look at the, the total... Um consequence of a choice like you could say well the best way to to solve the benefits cliffs is just pay people more right so you you, you go at things like minimum wage and say we're just going to pay people more so that they have more resources so that they can you know buy the things that they need and i understand that it's logical it's probably what people want in many cases but there's a margin of diminishing returns. What is that margin of returns? It has a different impact for people working in certain kinds of businesses than in others. We know, for example, we don't want to pay $50 for lunch. But if you elevate everybody's wages to a certain point in the restaurant business, your cost for lunch is going to keep going up and up and up until it starts hurting the business, actually doing the opposite of what you hope. It will take money away from those people that depend on jobs in that industry. So where is the right balance? And I think what food banks do is give options besides um, just flat out financial incentives, right? Sometimes giving food is better than giving money. I'm not saying it's always true, but sometimes it's true. So how do we balance the cost benefit of these solutions looking at these real problems like the benefits cliff that disincentivize work, how do we do that together in conversations that explore all of the impacts of these decisions and put forth solutions that are not only impactful, but they have the right cost benefit, they have the right scalability and the right sustainability so that the community can have everything it needs to be successful. Well, and I think one of the things that, that conservatives want to know is, again, talking about right-sizing the problem in this context is, where's the end? 
How do we know enough is enough, whether it's more money or more food or a combination of the two? How do we know enough is enough? When are people not going to need the government and they're not going to need the charitable food network? Well, guess what? I think we have an answer to that, and that's called the self-sufficiency standard, and that's housed at our website at fbcmich.org slash self-sufficiency standard, and you can see what it takes for a household uh, 719 different households across all of Michigan's 83 counties and what it takes for them to not need us or the government. And if we can take those work supports and stretch them across that wage scale until people are self-sufficient, then I think that's a policy that can really show a, make a difference in people's lives and in the communities they live in and impact health outcomes, educational outcomes, and, you know, just generally give people a chance to live life well. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, again, trying to drive solutions that we know work, not solutions that we think work. And right. that's, I think that's a really important thing. And again, I don't want to make that just a conservative value. I think there's a lot of people across the spectrum that that have those values, but I think we in the nonprofit area need to be particularly aware of when we say things that we want that we don't actually know work. And so, and defining what does work mean? <laughs> There's all kinds of things that have to be done to get to solutions because, you know, ferreting out the values that people have and the reasons for those values and the, you know, all of the things, I, you know, and there's so many examples on that too. Like in our healthcare program, our home healthcare program, when we're delivering food to, uh, to patients in healthcare who are food insecure and they need that food for their medicine or, or for, their, sure. for their treatment plan, one of the things we found out that we weren't even thinking about was that people really appreciated having contact with another person. You know, some of these people don't get to see very many people. And so having right. that social benefit of just seeing that driver come and say, okay, here's your, here's the food that you need for your treatment plan. And, and, you know, today you get a choice between this and this and having a conversation with somebody. Sometimes that alone provides a value you can't measure easily. So I'm yeah. not saying that everything can be can be boiled down to simple economics, but I will say that simple economics are important and we do look at them because you have to if you're going to give everyone what they need all the time. Well, one size fits all rarely fits. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Whether we're talking about pants or policy, that's pretty much the, the, the way that it works out. Hey, we got to take a break. Jerry and I are back to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan. Thanks for being with us. Come back and join us in just a moment. Well, we appreciate everybody being with us today. And, Jerry, we're uh, attracting conservatives to this movement and why they should join us, and many of our but we want them all because we need everyone to help us solve this problem. I think that's right. And, and when you look at the benefits of food security, um, there's no reason everybody shouldn't want it. And I know that's like, oh, everybody says that. But I, but I really mean it. it <laughs> the, 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 when people have nourishing food and enough nourishing food, they think better, 
they have better um, performance in their job, better performance in school. Um, there's so much evidence that shows that they have a healthier lifestyle and, and the more people have access to healthy food, the more healthy food they want and will consume. There's so much evidence around the benefit and the value of food security and particularly how nourishing food drives a better life, right? And so, you know, it's, I, I think it makes all kinds of sense why people from every walk of life would say, yep, this is something we need to do. Now, it's our job to say that, and so, you know, I, I will fully admit that there's some vested mm -hmm. interest, but I didn't get into this work because it was going to make me rich. I didn't get into this work because it was going to make me popular or it was going to make me famous. I got into this work because I believe the value of it is so important if we want to have a successful community and i care about the people we serve i know their stories i've walked their life with them and i will tell you there is nothing like having enough nourishing food at home to make you feel valuable yeah i think that's a great point jerry and i think one of the other reasons you got into this is to um it's because you believe this problem can be solved I really do. I really do. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Well, it's time for a little food for thought. Let's end this show with this premise. Imagine what your community would look like if no one in it was living under the toxic stress of food insecurity. What would the economy be like? Educational outcomes, health and wellness indicators, what a great vision for a better tomorrow. Communities, schools, and families all nourished and ready to thrive. We will need both conservative and liberal, and everyone in between, quite frankly. We'll need agnostic, atheist, faith-filled, Hindus, Muslims, Jewish, Christian, and if you are simply blessed and breathing, to help us make this vision a reality. And we'll start by keeping food first folks food first food first michigan presented by farm bureau insurance of michigan and by the food bank council of michigan creating a food secure state